All right, good morning. It's good to see you this morning. Glad that you are here with us. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Luke chapter 4. It's been a while since you've been with us, or maybe this is your first time visiting. First of all, welcome. Uh, you should know that we are in the series on the Gospel of Luke. We are making our way through that Gospel. Our hope is that we can see Jesus more clearly, and that by the end of this series, we'll have a greater appreciation and love for who He is. That's always the goal, is that we will grow in our love for Christ. That's the goal this morning, too. Let me pray, then we'll get to it. Uh, Father, we thank you for the opportunity to open your word, and indeed it is our prayer this morning that we would leave here with a greater appreciation for and love for our Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray that we would see his greatness, that we would worship him for who he is. There's none like him. But we pray that this morning our hearts will be filled with gratitude because we know that what we cannot do, you have done. We could not live the perfect life it was required. We could not satisfy the demands of the law. Jesus did. Because of that, we have hope. And so this morning, as we turn our attention to Luke chapter 4, we see Jesus in the wilderness. We pray that we would be reminded of his greatness, and that we would leave here this morning worshipers, Lord, that you would speak to us loudly and clearly through your word, that we would leave with a greater love for him. Indeed, you're a great Savior, and we're praying that we would see that this morning. In Christ's name we pray, amen. So is the devil real? If you were to ask most Americans that question, I think the answer would probably be no. Now having said that, I think that many Americans would still say that they believe the devil exists. In fact, a new Gallup report from last year revealed that 58% of Americans still say they believe in the devil. But if you drill down a little bit deeper, that number is perhaps misleading. Because the fact is that even amongst those who say they believe in the devil, most don't actually believe he's a living being. Instead, they see him merely as a symbol of evil. Case in point, another survey revealed that amongst those who profess to be followers of Christ, I'm talking about people who say they are Christians, less than 40% believe that Satan is a living being. So indeed, it would seem that most Americans, even those who say they're Christians, even those who say they believe in the devil, don't believe that he actually exists, at least in any sort of tangible or meaningful way. And of course, there are many around us who would flat out scoff at the idea that there's an ancient adversary, a spiritual force of darkness. To quote one college professor who also happens to be a noted atheist and secularist, again, I'm quoting here, how can anyone with even a basic knowledge of history and psychology, science and anthropology, mythology and logic, believe that there's an immortal being running around doing evil things? It's so absurd as to be pathetic. By the way, that might be one of the nicer things this particular professor said in his article about people believing in the devil. The tone of the entire article is dripping with contempt and scorn and condescension. From this particular professor's perspective, the idea that anyone would believe that there is a spiritual force of darkness, anyone who would believe that there is a devil, that person is living in the height of irrationality. It's nonsensical, foolish, and according to this professor, maybe even dangerously naive. So needless to say, then, not everyone around us believes the devil's real. But here's the thing you need to understand this morning. Here at Fremont E. Free, we believe that the Bible is the Word of God, 100% accurate in all that it teaches and without error. And as such, it is our source of truth and reality. And in the Bible, in both the Old and New Testament, the devil is undeniably described as a real being. He's not merely a symbol of evil or an impersonal force or a mythical figure who doesn't actually exist. He's a real being who schemes and prowls and actively opposes the mission and the work of God. And that's a reality that we're reminded of very vividly in our passage today. 
In Luke chapter 4, before Jesus begins his public ministry, he's led by the Spirit into the wilderness. And in the wilderness, he encounters the devil. And in that encounter, it's very apparent to us that the devil is real. And that his opposition to the work of God is, in fact, tangible. But also in Luke 4, it's also equally apparent that the devil can be overcome. He's not an unstoppable force who has unlimited power. He may be real and his opposition may be fierce. He may be the ancient adversary. That's something we need to be aware of. But as our passage today reminds us, he can be defeated. His temptation can be resisted. So that said, let's turn our attention to Luke 4, 1 to 13, where Jesus encounters the devil in the wilderness. If you would, please stand out of reverence for the reading of God's word. Luke 4, 1 to 13, words will be on the screen here shortly, or you can just follow along in your own Bibles, or you can listen as I read. But the word of God says this, beginning in verse 1. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time, and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it's been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem, and set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it's written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. It's the word of God. You may be seated. So here's the main thing I think we can take away from this morning. Our adversary, the devil, is real, despite what many in our culture might say. He is real, and he'll do everything he can to pose the mission of God and the work of God and the people of God. But also, and this is key, there is a path to victory over the devil. His opposition can be overcome. His temptations can be resisted. That's the main takeaway this morning. And actually, I want to spend most of our time thinking today about the path to victory. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus is modeling for us what it looks back to fight against the schemes of the devil. And I think it's crucial that we spend our time this morning thinking about how Jesus did that. Because at the end of the day, I want you to leave here this morning feeling equipped to fight against the adversary, to fight against the ancient foe. But before we turn our attention in that direction, before we dive into the blueprint that Jesus provides for us in this passage in terms of how we might be victorious over Satan, I think we need to first pause and acknowledge the reality that there is an evil one. Again, despite what our culture may say, or some college professors may say, or what even some churches may say, the devil is real. Again, in both the Old and New Testament, the devil is presented as a real being who's actively opposed to God's mission and God's people. In the book of Genesis, it's the devil, Satan, who comes to Adam and Eve in the form of a serpent and tempts Adam and Eve to eat of the forbidden fruit. And once they do so, the whole world is plunged into darkness and sin. In the book of Job, it's again Satan, the devil, who wreaks havoc in the life of Job. In the book of Ephesians in the New Testament, Paul encourages us, this is the passage Jim read earlier, to put on the armor of God so that we can stand against the devil's schemes. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, Paul talks about the snare of the devil and how he's captured some to do his will. In 1 Peter 5, Peter describes the devil as prowling around like a lion, looking for someone to devour. 
Peter then goes on to encourage us to resist the devil and to stand firm in our faith. Suffice to say then, in both the Old and New Testament, the devil is presented as a real being who's actively opposed to God's work. And it's crucial that we understand this reality so that we can be prepared. To use language of 2 Corinthians chapter 2, we do not want to be outwitted by Satan or to be ignorant of his designs. But in order to avoid being outwitted, we first have to accept the reality that Satan is real and his opposition is tangible. We have to acknowledge we have an enemy. We have an enemy. Tony and I lived in Amarillo, Texas for five years. And the house that we lived in at the time, I was a youth pastor there, the house we lived in backed up to a large field. And as it turns out, fields in West Texas tend to track some creatures or some critters. We had a few encounters with snakes over the years. We saw a few horned toads too. But mostly we dealt with a lot of insects and spiders. I have stories I could tell you about tarantulas and scorpions and black widows. There was also a time that we had a severe, and I mean a severe moth infestation. The point is that in Texas, we had a lot of insects and pests to deal with. But here's the thing. We didn't know that when we moved in. Prior to that, Tony and I lived in apartments in Cedar Falls, Iowa, and Louisville, Kentucky. As you might imagine, we did not encounter a lot of tarantulas or scorpions in Iowa or Kentucky. So when we first moved to Amarillo, we were completely ignorant of the pest battle that we were facing. But after a couple of months, it became obvious, we are going to have to do something. My wife did not particularly enjoy having scorpions and tarantulas in the house. And I can't say that I did either. So we called a local pest guy, and after he came and started treating our house on a quarterly basis, things got a lot better. But it all started with us recognizing we have an issue here. There's an opposition that we must face. There's something going on that we have to address. In the same way, I would just say this. If we're going to try to avoid being outwitted by Satan's schemes, which seems like a good idea, the first step is simply acknowledging we have an opponent. Satan is real and he's on the tack. Now, having said that, here's the trick. If you have a tarantula or a scorpion problem, it's pretty easy to identify because you can see the tarantulas and you can see the scorpions with your own eyes. But because Satan typically operates in the unseen spiritual world, it's much more difficult to accept his existence, especially given where we live in time. This side of the Enlightenment, we tend to think rationally, not spiritually. But the testimony of Scripture is clear. Satan is real. And so if we really believe that the Bible is the Word of God, and by the way, I think we have every reason to believe that it is, that we must also accept the testimony of God's Word. The devil is real, and he's actively opposed to the mission of God and the people of God. And just because we can't see him doesn't mean he doesn't exist. Listen, I've never seen the wind before, but I believe the wind is real because I feel the wind's effects all the time. In the same way, I believe in the reality of Satan, first and foremost because of the testimony of Scripture, but also believe in the reality of the devil because I see his effects everywhere. There's an evil that is present in this world, and that evil can be traced back to the evil one. Now, obviously, sin is a part of the equation too, but that too can be traced back to him. It goes back to Genesis 3, the first temptation. So listen, the devil is real. And I think acknowledging that reality, that there is an evil one, that he's actively opposed to the mission of God and the people of God, must be the starting place for our conversation this morning. Before we dive into the particulars of how Jesus fought back against the devil, and thus provided us a roadmap for how we can do the same, we first must acknowledge there is an enemy that must be fought back against. So that's where we're starting this morning, acknowledging the reality of the devil and his tangible opposition. Now, having said that, I realize that it's a little bit scary sometimes to admit that there is an adversary like this that exists. 
But while that may be bad news, there is good news in Luke 4. Because Luke 4 not only reminds us of the reality of the devil, but we also are reminded in Luke 4 that there is a path to victory over the devil. His opposition can be overcome. His temptations can be resisted. And we see that reality as Jesus interacts with the devil in the wilderness. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus is victorious over Satan. He does not give in to the devil's temptations. He is not outwitted by the devil's schemes. And so the question I want us to think about together in the rest of our time this morning is simply this. Why was Jesus victorious? What did he do that enabled him to overcome the devil? What strategies did he employ to overcome the evil one? Now here's why I think that question is relevant for us. If our battle is against the spiritual forces of darkness, as Ephesians 6 would tell us, and if Satan is trying to outwit us, as 2 Corinthians 2 would teach, and if Satan is trying to take us captive to do his will, as 2 Timothy 2 suggests, then we need to be ready to fight back against him. We need to learn from Jesus' victory so that we too can walk down the same path. So to that end, I think there are three strategies that we see employed by Jesus here that I think we can employ also in our fight against the ancient adversary. So again, the question we're asking this morning is how do we fight back against the devil? How do we resist his temptation? Strategy number one, trust in God's provision and timing. Trust in God's provision and timing. In verses 1 and 2, we're told that Jesus was in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. The tense of the verb that's used there in verse 2 would suggest Jesus was being tempted throughout his 40 days. But those temptations seem to come to a culmination at the end of the 40 days in three specific temptations that are described in verses 3 to 12. I think it's worth thinking about each of those three temptations that we see in those verses. So why don't you look at the first temptation as described in verse 3 here. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. So that's the first temptation. It's interesting that on the heels of Jesus' baptism, in which a voice from heaven declared, you are my beloved son, with you I'm well pleased, over Jesus, that Satan now picks up on that language of son and uses it to try to tempt Jesus. He says, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become bread. Now, given the way the phrase is worded, it doesn't seem the devil is calling into question whether Jesus is actually the son. It's just the two of them in the desert. Satan knows that he's the son. So what he's not saying is, if you're the son, I don't know if you really are. No, what he's saying is, if you're the son, if that's your identity, if you have this power at your disposal, why don't you use your power? Why don't you turn this stone into bread? Now, the context here matters. Jesus has been out in the wilderness 40 days. We're told in verse 2 that he ate nothing during those days. Now, whether that means he actually ate nothing during the whole time or if that's just a shorthand way of saying that he was fasting, we're not sure. But the bottom line is he's eaten very little, if anything. And so, as we're told, he's hungry, which makes sense. I think we would be too if we did not eat for that period of time. And so Satan is tempting Jesus at the level of his hunger. And essentially what Satan is doing is tempting Jesus to use his power as the Son of God for his own needs. He's saying, if you're the Son of God and if you're hungry, which you are, Why don't you show your power and satisfy your hunger? So in that moment, Jesus had a choice. He could obey the Father and follow the Spirit's leading and remain without food, or he could choose to use his power to satisfy his own desires and his own needs. It was a question of obedience and trust. Would Jesus trust the Father's timing and provision, or would he take things into his own hands? Now the second temptation is much different. But I think Satan is actually getting at the same root issue. Look at verses 5 to 7 here. Verse 5, temptation 2. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. 
and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it's been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. Now, obviously, there's some question here as to whether Satan actually has the power to do what he says he can do in verses 5 to 7. He claims to have the authority to be able to give away all kingdoms. Now, there is a sense in which Satan is the ruler of the world. That's something that's confirmed in Scripture. But we also know that all authority ultimately belongs to God. So at best here, it would seem that Satan is probably overselling his authority in verses 5 to 7. At worst, he's just flat out lying, which wouldn't be surprising since he is the father of lies. Either way, though, Satan is offering to Jesus rule and authority. He's offering power. And crucially, he's offering it free of suffering and difficulty. Think about this. If Jesus submitted to the Father's plan, he would eventually reign. In fact, in Philippians 2, we see that's what happens. That now, because Christ suffered, every knee will one day bow before him, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So that was the Father's plan, that one day he would reign. But it would come through suffering, and it would come through a trip to the cross and bearing the wrath of God. What Satan seems to be offering here is a shortcut. You can have the glory and you can have the authority without all the suffering. All you have to do is worship me. At its core then, temptation two is really the same as temptation one. Will Jesus trust God's provision and timing? Will he obey the Father? Or will he take matters into his own hands? Will he take the easier route? So again, temptations one and two, much different, but they're getting at the same thing. Will Jesus trust God's provision? Will Jesus trust the Father's timing? Temptation three, again, much different, but actually seems to be headed in the same direction, verses nine to 11. And he, being the devil, took him up to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it's written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. So Satan again, now here, in verse 9, appeals to the idea of Jesus being the Son. If you're the Son, why don't you throw yourself down and see if God will protect you? Don't you want to see, don't you want to prove that God cares for you? The temptation then was to put God to the test rather than humbly trusting him. Rather than trusting that God the Father would provide protection as needed, and when the timing was right, Satan is trying to get Jesus to make God prove that he cares now. In other words, in all three temptations, Satan is trying to get Jesus to question God's goodness, to question God's timing, to question God's provision. If God really loved you, wouldn't he want you to have food now? If God really had a plan for you, wouldn't he just give you all the kingdoms now? If God really cared about you, wouldn't he... Not mind if you put that care to the test right now to make sure that he does. Satan is trying to undermine God's care and provision, which if you think of it, was the same thing he was doing back in Genesis 3. He's still shooting the same bullet from the same gun. He's still asking the same question, just like he was back in Genesis 3, is God really good? Can you really trust him? Are his commands really for your benefit? Now, Adam and Eve did not believe that God was good in that moment and they gave in. But Jesus answered in the wilderness to all those questions, at least as evidenced by his actions, and as we know his heart, was absolutely and unequivocally, yes, God is good, and yes, God can be trusted. And yes, his timing is perfect. Jesus looks to God's word and his promises in order to remember who God is. And because he does so, he's able to trust in God's timing and provision. Hear this, the ultimate temptation in the wilderness was not about bread, it was not about kingdoms. It was not about jumping off cliffs. It was about trust in God. 
Would Jesus trust the Father enough to obey? Would Jesus trust the Father's provision and timing? And understand this. This is the same temptation that Satan is using today. He lures us into sin by convincing us God really can't be trusted. God's commands are not really for our good. God doesn't really know what he's doing. Satan tempts us to believe that sin is worth pursuing now because God is not really going to provide for us. So Satan convinces us, pursue sexual morality, disobey your parents, cheat on your income taxes, selfishly hoard your money, don't tell the truth, seek revenge, hold on to that grudge, get angry at God because he doesn't know what he's doing. Over and over and over again, Satan is tempting us in the same way. He's trying to get us to believe God's not really good, God can't really be trusted, his commands aren't for our benefit. Therefore, we should take things into our own hands. We should pursue our own desires. At its core, sin is a refusal to believe that God is good and can be trusted, which is why sin is so egregious. It's an affront to a holy God because what we're saying when we choose to sin is, I know better than he does. When we have sex outside of marriage, when we lie to our parents, when we speak harshly to others, or when we look at pornography, or when we chase after materialism and money, It's not just that we're disobeying a command, it's that we're calling into question God's goodness. The first strategy then to fight back against Satan's tactics is simply to trust that God is good and he knows what he's doing. It's to remember the character of God. And one of the ways we know his character is because the word tells us about his character, which brings us to strategy number two. Strategy two in our fight against Satan, know and wield the word of God. Know and wield the word of God. In each temptation, Jesus is tempted to call into question God's goodness and his timing and his provision. But notice the way that Jesus responds each and every time. In all three temptations, he responds by quoting the word of God. Look first at temptation number one in verses three to four. Verse three, the devil said to him, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. So Satan tempts Jesus, Jesus responds with the word of God, it is written. He does the same thing in temptation too, verses 5 to 8. Verse 5, the devil took him him up and showed him all the kingdom of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you I will give all this authority and their glory for it's been delivered to me and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, it is written. You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Again, same pattern. Satan tempts. Jesus responds, it is written. Temptation three, we see in verses nine through 12. Verse nine, he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands, they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. And Jesus answered him, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Now the interesting thing about the third temptation is that Satan himself uses scripture to try and tempt Jesus. Now Satan is quoting scripture out of context. He's not applying it in an appropriate way, but he's using scripture. And I think that's worth noting. Just because someone quotes scripture doesn't mean they're quoting it rightly. In fact, many enemies of the gospel will quote scripture. But like Satan, they will rip it out of context or apply it wrongly. By the way, when churches do this, when they rip verses out of context or they apply it wrongly, they're doing the same thing that Satan was doing. This is a tactic of the enemy. 
But because Jesus knows the word, he sees right through the tactic. He responds to Satan's misapplication of Scripture with his own correct use of Scripture. It is said. So in all three temptations, Jesus responds to the temptation by remembering and quoting Scripture. And in doing so, I think he's perfectly modeling for us what Paul talked about in Ephesians chapter 6. In Ephesians 6, Paul implores us to put on the armor of God in our battle against Satan. And in verse 17, he specifically encourages us to use the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Now, I love that imagery of sword because I think it communicates something to us about the seriousness of our battle and our need for preparation. For example, I don't bring a sword when I come to work here at the church. I'm not real worried that I'm going to have to use a sword when I walk through the church office hallway, right? I'm I'm just not worried about it. But if we're going to be engaged against Satan, we need to be prepared. I think the imagery of sword reminds us of that. But I also love the sword imagery because it communicates how effective the Word of God is as a weapon. I don't know if you've ever seen a movie before or clips from a movie that depict old school battle scenes where they're using swords. But if you've ever seen a movie like that or a clip from a movie like that, then you know swords can do some serious damage. Someone who knows how to wield a sword correctly is going to have a huge advantage in hand-to-hand combat. So I love the idea here that the Word of God is called the sword of the Spirit. And I think Jesus is using that, that tactic of using the sword as a weapon perfectly in his fight against the devil. He responds to Satan's temptation by wielding the sword. Now, having said that, here's my fear. I think some of us haven't really picked up that sword. We're in a sword battle, but we're trying to fight with our hands. Or to use a modern sporting analogy, we're in a fencing match, but we don't even have the fencing sword, whatever it's called. I think it might be called a foil or something, but you know, if you're trying to fence without the sword, you're in trouble. Or just to say more plainly here, we are ill-equipped to fight against Satan because we don't know the word of God. Here's a question for you. If you were at a family dinner, let's say it's Christmas gathering or something, and one of your relatives started slightly misquoting Scripture out of context or started slightly misapplying it, would you know the word well enough that your radar would start going off? Okay, that doesn't sound right. Or ask another way. When you're tempted to sin, are you familiar enough with God's word that you're able to combat that temptation by fighting back with the word of God? Now hear this, I'm not always successful in my fight against sin. Sometimes I give in. But when I am successful, I found that oftentimes it's because I'm using Scripture to combat that temptation. When I'm tempted, for example, to respond back in anger to someone, I can fight against that temptation by remembering the command in Ephesians, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. When I'm at the end of my parenting rope, and I feel like either giving up or blowing up, I can fight against that temptation by remembering Ephesians 6, 4, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now again, to be clear, there are times where I don't win the battle. But when I do, it's oftentimes because it's the word of God that gives me the motivation to fight back against the enemy. I'm able to use the sword to fight off his attacks. In light of that, again, here's my concern for some in the room. If you're not actively engaged in reading God's word on a regular basis, if you're not making an effort to keep the Word of God in your heart, either through memorization or regular meditation, that's the equivalent of going into a sword fight with a Nerf sword. Or worse yet, it's the equivalent of going into a sword fight with both hands tied behind your back. As Jesus models here in the wilderness, if we're going to fight against Satan's tactics, we need to know and wield the Word of God. But to fight against Satan, I think there's a third strategy we need to employ, and that's that we need to walk in the Spirit. Verse 1. Verse 1, and Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness. 
When most people preach on this passage, they tend to focus on Jesus' use of the word to fight back against Satan. That's appropriate because every time Satan tempts him, he fights back with the word. But I think it's a mistake to ignore the way the passage is set up here. In verse 1, the Spirit is mentioned twice. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, we're told, is being led by the Holy Spirit. Now in that same Ephesians 6 passage, it talks about wielding the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The very next verse talks about praying at all times in the Spirit. And at least in part, I have to think that's what's going on here in Luke chapter 4. Verse 2 mentions that Jesus did not eat for 40 days. We're left to assume he's probably fasting. And that assumption is confirmed, by the way, in the parallel account in the Gospel of Matthew. And in Scripture, fasting almost always goes hand in hand with prayer. There's an expectation that if you fast, you will pray. And given Jesus' dependency on prayer throughout the Gospel of Luke, I think it's safe to assume then that one of the ways that Jesus is being led by the Spirit in the wilderness is that he's praying in the Spirit. And so church, just let me, let me say this. If you have any desire to defeat sin, if you have any desire to grow in godliness, if you have any desire to hold off the tactics of Satan, then I would recommend that you commit yourself to being a person of prayer. Cry out to God regularly and frequently and urgently. It's one of the ways that we can fight back against Satan's tactics. And it's actually a very practical strategy that we can use in the moment. For example, I've seen this to be effective in our own marriage. If Tanya and I are getting a little bit chippy with one another, I'm not saying we ever would, I'm just saying theoretically if we were. Nah, who am I kidding? We, we get chippy sometimes. But if we will pause for a minute in the midst of that argument, and this is really hard to do, by the way, but if we'll pause for a minute and we'll pray it's amazing how that tends to take the air right out of the argument balloon. Now, to be clear, I'm not talking about an attack prayer here. Maybe you've heard those types of prayers before. Maybe you prayed them before. Me praying something like, God, please help Tony to see how wrong she is right now. Please help her to see how right I am. I'm not talking about that type of prayer. That prayer is not real effective. I might have figured that out sometimes in my own experience. What I am talking about, though, is a genuine prayer made in sincerity. God, we are not in a good place. We need your help. Please help us be led by your spirit and not by our flesh. That type of prayer has a tendency to make petty squabbles dissipate. And no doubt that tactic works in almost every other situation that we might be tempted to sin. If we can have, by the spirit's power, the ability in the moment to just stop and pray, God, I need your help here. I'm feeling tempted. I'm weak. Please allow me to walk in your spirit and not in my flesh. God often answers that prayer. So listen, I think there are some strategic moves we can make in our fight against Satan here. We can trust in God's provision and timing. We can know and wield the word of God. And we can walk in the spirit, praying in the spirit at all times. But having said all that, let's just be honest here. There are times where we're going to lose the battle still. And that's why what happens here in Luke 4 is so important. Jesus is not just giving us an example of how to defeat Satan. He is defeating Satan. And ultimately, he would defeat Satan by going to the cross and then three days later being raised from the dead. And so what's happening here in Luke 4 is not just that we're getting tactical advice about how to defeat the devil, but we're also seeing that ultimate victory would ultimately come through the one who conquered Satan in the desert. Jesus was able to defeat Satan in a way that none of us ever will. And actually, I think Luke is wanting us to see this. I think he's setting up some parallels to help us understand that Jesus is not like us. For example, unlike Israel that wandered in the wilderness for 40 years and continually gave in to temptation, Jesus was in the wilderness 40 days, but he never gave in. 
Unlike Adam, who was tempted by the serpent and sinned, Jesus was tempted by the devil but was sinless. So what we're saying then is this. Our hope is not found in our ability to defeat Satan. Now certainly we're expected to fight back against his tactics. But our hope is found in the one who defeated Satan in a way that none of us ever will. Jesus never sinned. Jesus never gave in. Jesus was not defeated by Satan. He defeated Satan. Now because he was tempted without sin, he's able to help us in our temptation. But more importantly, because he defeated Satan once and for all, dying on the cross, being raised three days later, his victory can be credited to our account if we trust in him. So listen, because we're sinners, we will not be able to defeat Satan on our own power. We need Jesus' help to fight back against him. But more importantly, we need Jesus' victory to be credited to our account because there are times where we will fail. We need to place our faith in the one who never lost the one who defeated Satan once and for all. And actually, I think that's the ultimate lesson of Luke 4. Yes, Luke 4 teaches us that our adversary, the devil, is real, and he'll do everything he can to oppose the mission of God and the people of God. And yes, Luke 4 teaches us there is a path towards victory. His opposition can be overcome if we trust in God's provision, if we wield the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, if we're praying in the Spirit, But ultimately, Luke 4 reminds us that we need to put our trust in the one who never gave in to Satan. We need to put our trust in Jesus Christ. He is the one that we look to. He is the one that can rescue us from the snare of the ancient enemy. He is the one more powerful than the one that's in the world. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the reminder that we have here in Luke 4 of the spiritual battle that we face And I know in a post-enlightenment world, we are oftentimes skeptical of a spiritual dimension that exists. But for most Christians throughout history, for most Christians around the world, even today, no such skepticism exists. There was an understanding that there is a spiritual battle and that it's real and that there is an ancient adversary. And so God, I just pray that you would help us to, first of all, recognize that reality, that there is an adversary. But secondly, I pray that you would help us to employ the tactics that we see Jesus employing here in the desert. I pray that you would help us, Lord, to trust your provision and timing. I pray that you would allow us to wield the word with effectiveness. God, I pray that we would walk in the Spirit, praying at all times. But Lord, ultimately, I pray that we would look to you knowing that you were the one who's victorious. And our hope is not in our ability to defeat Satan. It's in the reality that you have defeated Satan on the cross, dying for our sins, and then being raised three days later. And so I pray this morning that our ultimate aim, while yes, it's good to employ the tactics we talked about, our ultimate aim is to put our trust in you and to recognize you are the victorious one. So help us to do that, Lord, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So in the weeks opposite the Lord's Supper, we like to spend some time just praying as a church.